Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A divided Congress is facing a deadline to raise the debt limit by Thursday. That's when the Treasury Secretary says the ceiling will be hit. Republicans have said they won't budge without disputed spending cuts. Today, President Biden called Republicans, quote, fiscally demented. He spoke at a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday event in Washington. And before he has announced any official plans to run again, he asked for support in his commitment to equity. We've got to stand together, including protecting a woman's right to choose. We have to continue to fight for racial justice. We've got to cut black child poverty. We cut it in half in 2021 because of the child tax credit. We should be permanently cut it. Republicans, meantime, are asking for visitor logs at Biden's Delaware home, where more classified material turned up. The White House says such logs don't exist there. At least 40 people are dead in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro after one of the worst civilian attacks of the war. A Russian missile Saturday leveled a nine-story apartment building with families inside. Dozens of people are still missing. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the attack underscores the need for more arms supplies. Russia does not deny firing the missile, but says the strike is Ukraine's fault. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov insisted a wave of Russian airstrikes Saturday were aimed only at Ukrainian military targets and blamed what he called the tragedy in Dnipro on Ukraine. Russia has repeatedly accused Ukrainian air defenses of causing civilian casualties by knocking Russian missiles off their intended course. Ukrainian officials have dismissed those claims and note the Russian rocket used in the Dnipro attack was of a type Ukraine cannot intercept. Meanwhile, the Russian-backed authorities in the annexed Crimean port city of Sevastopol said their air defense had successfully repelled a series of Ukrainian drone attacks on the city early Monday. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Investors will be watching for new clues this week about the housing market and retail spending. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Retail sales were down in November, and forecasters expect to see a further decline when the December numbers are released on Wednesday. Furniture and home furnishing stores have felt the slowdown in the housing market. Both new home construction and sales of existing homes have been hit by rising mortgage rates. The average cost of a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage dipped a bit last week, but is still nearly double what it was a year ago. The Federal Reserve has been boosting borrowing costs to crack down on inflation. The inflation rate in December was down for the sixth month in a row. That gave a lift to stocks last week, with the Dow climbing 2 percent, the S&P 500 up 2 and two-thirds percent, and the Nasdaq jumping almost 5 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Markets are closed today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Activists and elected officials promised to fight for racial equity in education at Boston's annual Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast today. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the event was held in person at the Boston Convention and Events Center for the first time in two years. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu was moved when she took the podium, abandoning her prepared remarks for a personal speech about the state of American politics. We're battling not just two sides or left or right, but a growing movement of hate, abuse, extremism, and white supremacy. Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley called for more education funding. I don't want to romanticize resilience that our teachers are dipping into their own pockets to resource their classrooms or to feed their students, and then we lift them up and say how extraordinary this is. That is an outrage. 
both vowed to fight for Dr. King's legacy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Woodman. Melrose teachers have ratified a new contract. The tentative deal was approved by 97% of the Melrose Education Association members who voted today. Teachers reached the pact with the city over the weekend. It includes 10% pay raises over the three years of the contract. It also gives teachers more time to prepare lesson plans. The deal averts a strike by unionized teachers that was set to begin tomorrow. It still needs to be approved by the Melrose School Committee. Two teenagers are expected to be arraigned in Boston Juvenile Court after a stabbing loss night in downtown crossing. The 17-year-old and 13-year-old boys were arrested aboard an MBTA bus shortly after the incident. Police say the victim suffered non-life-threatening injuries. The teenage suspects are expected to face charges that include assault and battery. With much of eastern Massachusetts getting several inches of snow today and yesterday, AAA is reminding drivers how to safely navigate snow and ice on the road. AAA's Mary McGuire says give yourself extra time to get where you're going and slow down allow greater stopping distance so that you can make sure that if you do have to slow down or apply the brakes, you have greater stopping distance. McGuire also says if you end up skidding, you want to steer in the direction that you want to go and brake slowly and evenly. Much of Middlesex and Essex counties, as well as Cape Cod and the southeastern part of the state, remain under a winter weather advisory until 7 o'clock tonight. There is still some light snow and rain falling in some parts of the region. That should continue into the evening. Partly cloudy eventually overnight tonight, down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow, we actually may start up with some sunshine, although clouds could gather as the day goes on, warming to the mid-40s, and then mostly sunny skies and even milder on Wednesday. 32 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. Here in Los Angeles, the rain has felt relentless. It's basically all anyone can talk about right now, which is so strange in a place that's usually obsessed with drought. What's been confusing the last couple weeks is we're a state that has been struggling with flood emergencies during a drought emergency. And while we're hearing a lot of talk about how these historic rainstorms have made a noticeable dent in the drought conditions around here, One question now is, well, how much further do we actually have to go to end the drought that has gripped parts of California and the West for years? We're going to get a reality check on that now with Sarah Porter, who directs the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Welcome. Good to be here with you. Good to have you. Okay, so can you just start us off as concretely as possible? Is a drought defined by how much rain is falling, how much water is available to people in reservoirs, something else? What is the definition of a drought? Well, a drought really means below average precipitation over some period of time. Okay, so then what is the working definition of when a drought is over? Is it mostly about how much water is in the reservoirs before you can deem that an area has recovered from drought? Yeah, as far as our Western water challenges go, It's not how much rain fell on the ground outside your door in Los Angeles or outside my door in Phoenix. It's how much snowpack has built up that supplies the big reservoirs. Something like two-thirds of Californians rely in part on snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas. In the larger Colorado River watershed, which includes seven states and Mexico, a vast region, most of the water that flows in the Colorado into the reservoirs that people rely on 
comes from snowpack in the upper Rockies. So we look at snowpack in those places to think about how is precipitation impacting the water supply. And I would say we're in a good place in both the upper Rockies and in the Sierra Nevadas right now today, but we need that above average snow to continue through the winter. Okay. Well, if we are talking about the Western region of the US, the areas that have seen ongoing drought conditions for like more than 20 years, how far away are we from this goalpost that you have laid out that is full reservoirs? Can you just give us a real world picture? First of all, there's so many variables. It's very hard to say generally, but let's just say generally we're a few years away, especially to restore the Colorado River, which is such a critical water supply for Southern California and other big cities in the Southwest. We would need multiple years of well above average snowpack in the upper Rockies. The California Water Project that relies on water from the Sierra Nevada doesn't have as long a timeline to recover, but it's we would still need a couple really good winters for those reservoirs um, to start to recover. I guess I'm sort of listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, well, no, duh, a ton of rain and a ton of snow would be great for drought conditions. But meteorologically speaking, how realistic is it that we will actually see consistently this kind of historic level of rainfall and snowfall in the next several years consecutively? Not likely. The West is used to great variability. So we typically have a really wet year and then a string of dry years. That's typical. With climate change, we don't know. And one other really important point that we're just grappling with, and that is that the hotter temperatures during the year mean that less of that water, of that snowpack, turns into water that eventually makes its way into a river. The ground is hot and dry, so the ground holds more snow melt and more snow evaporates into the air than before. Mm -hmm. So the efficiency of turning snow into water that becomes the water supply in our reservoirs is really changing. Sarah Porter is director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. When the January 6th committee report dropped, a number of publishers were vying to be the first to release it as a book. You can now buy versions of this otherwise free government document from Penguin Random House, Macmillan, Skyhorse, and other publishers. And, you know, some government reports do have a track record of becoming splashy bestsellers. Think the 9-11 Commission Report or the Mueller Report from 2019. So... How is this one faring? Well, Andrew Limbong, host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast, has more. You, me, and the various publishers waiting with bated breath got the 845-page report all at the same time. It was 9.45 p.m. on the 22nd of December. That's Guy Oldfield, the senior director of production for Macmillan Audio. He was in charge of getting the audiobook version together as soon as possible. The planning for this project started much, much earlier in the year. He'd already lined up nine of his experienced, most efficient narrators and paired them up with nine of his sharpest audio editors. And they got to work reading and recording the Mammoth Report. Chapter 1. The Big Lie. Read for you by Lisa Flanagan. Late on election night 2020, President Donald J. Trump addressed the nation. It really was just a kind of a maths puzzle, and we figured it out. They figured it out fast, too. Oldfield and his team got the nearly 24-hour audiobook mixed and mastered by Christmas Eve morning. So, with that sprint of effort behind him, was it all worth it? We didn't set ourselves any particular expectations. We really weren't certain 
But having seen the sales numbers, it was well worth the effort. It really, really was. To be out there and to be out there first, definitely worthwhile. It's still pretty early, but as of this recording, the audiobook is 94th on Audible's top downloaded 100 audiobooks. On the print side of things, well, here's Kristen McLean, the primary industry analyst for NPD Books Group, which tracks books sales. She compared the first week's sales figures from the January 6th report to both the 9-11 Commission report and the Mueller report. First week sales for the January 6th committee are definitely weaker than what we saw for the first week of either the Mueller report or the 9-11 report. Less than half of the sales volume for this report compared to, say, the Mueller report. McLean says these first few weeks are big indicators. Typically, these types of reports have strong first weeks, and then they taper off within three weeks of the launch date in terms of the the total volume sold. McLean says this big drop-off between the January 6th report and the 9-11 commission report is that it's just entering a different America. Our politics are more polarized. Our media landscape is much more diffuse. But for Guy Oldfield, the director of production for Macmillan Audio, the chance to make the January 6th report into an audiobook was a chance to be a part of history. I'm a student of political science, and I could tell that this is a document that generations of Americans are going to go to and back to and consume and study for years to come. And it is, I don't want to sound like cliche, but it really is living history. And I think an audio version just makes it all the more real. And just because the January 6th report isn't dominating the sales charts like the 9-11 report did, they're still incentive for publishers to put out free government documents. They're not paying an advance to an author for this information, right? They may be paying an advance to someone to write a foreword. But beyond that, every unit that goes out the door has a profit margin attached for that publisher. For instance, according to McLean, one document that's consistently on the bestsellers list for political science is the United States Constitution. Andrew Limbaugh, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And in 1985, Vanessa Foster and her then-husband left their lives in Texas behind and traveled to Alaska. Upon arriving, they bought an old Jeep with the last of their money and started driving across the state. They were broke and unemployed. I had nothing left in the world. Nothing because we had left Texas and walked away from everything. Anyway, somewhere along the way, my husband decided it would be a great idea to pick up a hitchhiker. So he pulled over and picked up this guy. I didn't like him from the beginning, but um, after a few hours in the car together, we all needed to stop at a rest stop and we finally found one. I hopped out, rushed over to the ladies' room. And when I came out a few minutes later, my husband was exiting the men's room and we locked eyes and we looked over at the parking lot And the hitchhiker and our truck were gone. He left us stranded on the side of the road with nothing but the clothes we were wearing. And I think we had like $1.27 between us. So we became the hitchhikers. So we're, we're walking down the road, the highway outside Fairbanks, Alaska. Every car that did come by just kind of zoomed on past. But after a little while, an El Camino came up and pulled over, and um, the nice gentleman driving, he looked to be about middle-aged, kind of bright blue eyes, and he told us just to hop in the back. I'll never forget glancing over at him while we were driving down the road 
and seeing that he held the steering wheel the same way my father did. And when I saw that, the way his hands were positioned on the steering wheel, I took it as a sign that I could trust this man. And I started to believe that, okay, maybe, maybe everything's going to be all right. Him picking us up, it was like the flip side of the coin, and it restored my faith in humanity. One person could be so cruel as to leave us there, but another, another man could, you know, had the kindness in his heart to stop for these strangers, you know, walking down the road. So if he walked in right now, I would really like to just give him a hug and just let him know how much I appreciate his kindness toward a couple of strangers on that Alaskan highway. After picking them up, Foster's unsung hero gave them a free place to stay and jobs at his ranch in Homer, Alaska. After her time there, Foster ended her marriage and started a new life. Today, she is a writer, a financial planner, and a grandmother. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. This is 90.9 WBUR. The stock market and state and federal offices have been closed for the holiday today. A reminder that MBTA trains and buses are running on a Saturday schedule this Martin Luther King Day. Parking in Boston and other municipalities is free today. In business, the for-profit Bay State College could lose a major accreditation this year amid staff and budget cuts. The New England Commission on Higher Education decided to withdraw its endorsement of the school this month. The 76-year-old school has been under scrutiny by federal and elected officials after reports of budget shortfalls and dwindling student population. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. Coming to City Space, February 6th, James Beard Award-winning celebrity chef Ming Tsai talks about his career journey and love of East-West cooking. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, the holiday ends with just a few inches of snow on the ground, depending on where you are. Sleet this afternoon could make for some tricky driving, so be careful. Tomorrow may start off with some sunshine turning gray by the end of the day, right around the mid-40s. We could have a beautiful day coming up on Wednesday. Sunny and mild may hit 50 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. This is a 500-year-old song that carries both Turkish and Arabic elements. 
It's being taught in southern Turkey by Syrian classical musicians, refugees from Aleppo. The two cultures, Syrian and Turkish, have shared music and art for centuries. And as NPR's Fatma Tanis reports, a music institute hopes to revive that cultural connection and inspire integration through music. On a weekday evening in Gaziantep, a city in southern Turkey, students pile into a classroom. Most of them are Syrian men and women, ages ranging between 18 and 50 years old. Several musical instruments are set up at the front. The teacher, Syrian Ibrahim Muslimani, welcomes the class in Arabic and Turkish. He notes that there's a newcomer, a Turkish woman in her 20s who heard about the class from her Syrian friend and wants to learn more about their shared music and culture. Muslimani hands out the sheet music for the song they're learning today, which some of the students will play on their instruments and they will all sing along. One, two, three, four. This selection dates back five centuries and was played at Ottoman royal courts in Istanbul. The lyrics are about music itself and how varied it is, like the stars and planets in the sky. This rhythm is very common in Turkish music and in the Syrian city of Aleppo, known for its rich culture, now devastated by the civil war. The students go from singing the Ottoman song to this classic from Aleppo. For one of the students, Syrian Rafif Oflazolu, what she's learned here helped her adjust to her new adopted country after fleeing the dangers back home. It makes me feel that it's closer to me. Instead of thinking like you are a foreigner, when you see something you know in common between you and this culture, you feel that you are closer to this. You feel that it's two cultures, but you feel that music is unifying it. The school is run by the organization Muslimani founded called Nefes. First, there were two teachers. Now, they have 14 Syrian and Turkish, all volunteers. Along with musical and cultural appreciation, they teach how to play instruments, like the oud, an ancient pear-shaped string instrument and ancestor to the guitar. The kanun, a plucked zither. and the Darbuka drum, along with piano and violin. Musulmani says they have students ranging from six years old to older adults, and many of them fled the war next door. In every class, we speak both Turkish and Arabic. It's important because some of the young Syrian kids have spent most of their lives here in Turkey and are more fluent in Turkish. We're trying to preserve our Syrian cultural identity, but also getting to know the Turkish identity through art. Last year, an orchestra of 100 students, Syrian and Turkish, held a concert. It was attended by nearly 2,000 people, an emblem of the integration that this institute is trying to foster.
Turkey once had an open-door policy for Syrians, hosting millions of them. But the attitude has changed as Turkey's economy struggles and politicians scapegoat refugees. Racism has now unfortunately become part of regular life for us. But we believe that the activities we're doing here will lower the social tensions and highlight the richness of our presence together as Turks and Syrians. But what's going on here isn't just a superficial let's get together and sing kind of thing. It's a serious study of the music where the two cultures meet, starting with the tones themselves. Turkish and Arabic music are similar. To the uninitiated, they might even sound the same. They both use the same melodic system with microtones. Those are flourishes in between musical notes, and that's what differentiates it from what you'd hear on, say, a piano or a guitar. The microtones add many more layers of emotions and sounds to the music. But there are differences. Turkish and Arab musicians will tune their instruments and even play the same compositions differently. Some Turkish compositions that can sound playful with rapid plucked notes become heavier when played in the Arabic style with the notes drawn out. So this song played in the Turkish style at the school. like this in an Arabic-style recording. Students are transfixed by these details. I was shocked, like, there is a lot, you know, tens of the same songs that is was sing, you know, in, in Arabic and in Turkish. That's Rafif Oflazolo again. She fled Aleppo in 2013 and is now a Turkish citizen. She finds the connect-the-dots approach with music and culture at the school delightful. Also, I mean, the difference between, for example, the kanun, the Arabic one, and the Turkish one, and, you know, the tone, and you have half-tone, third-tone. I mean, there is something very unique about the Turkish music. She's 41 years old and comes from a family passionate about classical Arabic music. Back in Aleppo, she studied the oud for most of her life. Now in Turkey, she has an office job and cherishes the chance to keep exploring her love of music. I'm calling it, it's my therapy. <laughs> I keep saying this. Because, you know, we work for long hours, it's not easy. It's my third language, I mean, in this country, you know, we are not that much stable with a lot of, you know, challenges in life. But I think this is like my, my zone, my comfort, you know, place. This song is one of her favorites, about someone searching for their missing lover. The class sings along, first in Turkish, then Arabic. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Gaziantep, Southern Turkey.
This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, a tough time ahead for some laid-off tech workers who use work visas. Some have to find a job within 90 days or leave the country. In sports, it was a win-win day for the Celtics and the Bruins today. The Celtics beat the Charlotte Hornets on Charlotte's home court, 130-118. The Bruins demolished the Philadelphia Flyers at the Garden, 6-1. Veteran center David Krejci notched his 1,000th game for the Bruins today. Only two other players have hit that number while playing only for the Bruins, Patrice Bergeron and Wayne Cashman. In the forecast, still light snow and rain falling in some parts of the region. That should continue into the evening hours. Partly cloudy tonight, down around 30. Tomorrow, some sunshine early. Overcast skies later on, warming to the mid-40s. It's now 4.30. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, MLK's son, Martin Luther King III, says his father's legacy remains elusive. Have we achieved the dream? And the reality is absolutely not. We have made progress and strides, but we still have a long way to go. King spoke today at the same MLK Day event in Washington, D.C., where President Biden delivered a half-hour speech in which he said the country is facing an inflection point between democracy and autocracy. The president said the nation should be guided by the light of Dr. King. The president also took on Republicans, who now control the House, dismissing some of them as fiscally demented. They appear to be headed toward a showdown over the debt ceiling. Republicans want to cut spending in exchange for raising it. They're also investigating the Justice Department's handling of improperly stored classified documents found at President Biden's home in Delaware and at a private office in Washington, D.C. Rain and high winds still ravaging the San Francisco Bay Area. About 10 homes were evacuated because of a mudslide in the Berkeley Hills this morning. But after tonight, calmer conditions expected for the rest of the week. From member station KALW, Ben Trefney reports. The National Weather Service has issued a flood watch, coastal flood advisory, and a high wind warning for the Bay Area. Fallen trees and mudslides have forced the closure of a state highway in Oakland, and north of San Francisco, a state highway near Novato has been closed since Saturday because of storm-related flooding. On Saturday, high winds knocked a big rig over on the Golden Gate Bridge, and a falling tree branch killed a woman in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Since Christmas week, at least 19 people have reportedly died in the storms. For NPR News, I'm Ben Trefney in San Francisco. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The teachers union in Melrose has approved a new contract with the city. Members of the Melrose Education Association approved the deal today after members uh, received or approved a tentative agreement with the city over the weekend. Here's WBUR's Josie Guarino. 
97% of Melrose teachers voted in favor of the New Deal. It includes 10% pay raises over the three-year contract, retroactive to last July. The deal also gives teachers more time to lesson plan. President of the Melrose Education Association, Lisa Donovan, says they were ready to strike tomorrow if a deal wasn't reached. We are thrilled that we do not have to do that. Um, we are thrilled that we can now, for the first time in almost a year, fully focus on the students in front of us in our classrooms. Melrose Mayor Paul Brodeur calls the agreement a good deal that makes significant investments in teacher salaries. The Melrose School Committee still needs to approve the contract. That vote is expected later in the week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Members of the state's congressional delegation took time to acknowledge Martin Luther King Jr. today. Representative Jake Auchincloss and his family paid a visit to the new sculpture, The Embrace, on the Boston Common. Representative Ayanna Presley tweeted today that education and public schools are critical to the work of racial justice. Representative Richard Neal and Senator Elizabeth Warren also shared messages that celebrate King's legacy. The memorial to on the Boston Common celebrates the legacy of Dr. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King, who met in Boston. A small town in Maine known for its woods and its introverts is making international news after selling a winning Mega Millions ticket worth $1.35 billion. The lucky player has not been identified, but uh, the country store where the ticket was sold has been named. It's hometown gas and grill in Lebanon, Maine. Store owner Fred Kutro says that his cut for selling the winning ticket is $50,000. We're pretty happy. I'm going to give half of that back to the staff. We're going to disperse that. Maybe we'll get something nice for the town. And um, it's all good. It's just very exciting all around. A longtime lottery player himself, Kutro says that he hopes the winner is someone who's local. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. Still some sleet out there in some parts of the region this afternoon, making for tricky driving because it's now down to 32 degrees, so be careful out there. Tomorrow may start off with sunshine, although it could turn gray by the end of the day, right around the mid-40s. Could have a beautiful day on Wednesday, sunny and mild, maybe hitting 50 degrees. Again, 32 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden. Based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. 2022 was a rough year for the tech industry, and so far, 2023 is not looking much better. In the last few months, tens of thousands of tech workers have been laid off from companies like Amazon, Google, Salesforce, and Facebook. Losing a job is always hard, but you know, for people on work visas, a layoff can also start a pretty brutal ticking clock. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith has the story. Back in February, Hui Tu started a new job, a dream job, working as an artificial intelligence research scientist for Instagram. Tu showed up at the downtown New York office with a fake plant and a laminated sign that read, what would you do if you weren't afraid? The offices were 
glorious. Original artwork, designer furniture, free food. It feels very humble, like the the American dream, as cliche as it sounds, I feel like I finally like make it, you know? Tu grew up in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, pretty modest background. And the idea of working for a world-famous company like Instagram seemed like a fantasy. But Tu got into college in the U.S., earned a Ph.D., and landed a job at the social media giant. For the first time, they had steady income and security. So Tu booked a trip home to Vietnam to see family and deliver the good news in person. I haven't seen them for three years. I was going to visit for the new year, the Lunar New Year, but I was going to surprise them. But in early November, just eight months into their new job, two got a surprise, an email. Got an email at 6.10 a.m. EST. You remember like the minute. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty traumatizing. The email said Meta, parent company of Instagram and Facebook, was losing money. And Mark Zuckerberg, CEO, had made the hard but necessary decision to lay off 13% of the company's workforce, about 11,000 people. And the email said, Unfortunately, you'll be included in, in this layoff. Yeah. What went through your head when you read that? I just feel like this cannot be real. But it was real. And so was the terrible ticking clock Two is now on. Two is in the U.S. on a work visa. And like most work visas, it is tied to Two's job. Losing that job meant Two had 90 days to find a new one or have to leave the country. Two felt very alone. They didn't want to tell their family or their parents. After all, Two hadn't even told them about getting the job yet. So I'd like rather not have to worry them. When I find a job, I tell them. At Meta, Instagram's parent company, about one worker in five is on a work visa, like two. But the whole industry relies hugely on immigrant workers. It's something critics will often bring up. And in the last few months, thousands of these workers have been laid off and now have 60 days, or in some cases, 90 days, to find a new job or face having to leave the country. And many of them have spent years in the U.S. They have mortgages, kids in school. Two has lived in the U.S. for eight years. Their life is here. And Two's worried that 90 days won't be enough to find something new. Competing with that market is crazy. Because right now it's like flip, right? The situation flipped. The situation flipped. Traditionally, tech companies have been desperate for workers. But a lot of the big hiring behemoths like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they've been laying people off. Many others have hiring freezes in place. Tu says being on a work visa is a real disadvantage because visas can be costly and complicated for employers, not to mention the intense hiring deadline. So Tu is trying to cover all their bases. How many jobs have you applied to? Um, close to 75. You've applied to 75 jobs? That's a lot. I just feel like I have a race and I need to like apply to everything I see so far. Two says it feels dangerous to step away from the computer for even a few minutes or even just turn off the phone to get some sleep. I just feel like very on edge to be like, every time I hear the LinkedIn sound, I have to like respond right away. After all, that ping on LinkedIn could be a question from an employer or maybe even a job offer. And Hui Tu needs that to happen before February 6th. That is when the 90 days are up. Stacey Vanek-Smith. NPR News. 
Germany's defense minister resigned today after a series of missteps during her short term in office. She is the highest ranking member of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's government to resign, and her departure shines a spotlight on what many see as Germany's lackluster support of Ukraine in its fight against Russia. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. For many observers, Christine Lambrecht was an odd choice for Germany's defense minister. She had previously led Germany's family ministry and justice ministry, but she had zero military experience. Two months after she was appointed defense minister, this lack of experience began to show. Moving into a high-profile spot just as Germany's leadership in terms of its military commitments and its political commitments to uh, a democratic Ukraine were going to be put under the prism of public scrutiny uh, was a difficult transition for her. Catherine Kluve Ashbrook is the executive vice president of the Bertelsmann Foundation, a think tank in Berlin. She says as defense minister, Lambrecht was in charge of overseeing an historic transformation of Germany's armed forces after Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced a 100 billion euro boost in funding in the days following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was a difficult job for anyone, especially Lambrecht. She was never quite able to wrap her mind, it seemed, around truly um, all the urgent reforms that a German defense ministry needed. Um, she suffered from the inability of the Scholz cabinet and the chancellor himself to clearly map uh, Germany's goal for uh, its role in Ukraine. Early on in her tenure, as Ukraine and NATO allies were calling on Germany to send heavy weaponry to Kyiv, Lambrecht instead announced that Germany's delivery of 5,000 helmets would show what she called a strong alignment with Ukrainian war objectives. She was skewered by the German press for that, and for many other foibles, including her last one, an amateur video address she posted to Instagram reflecting on the new year and the war in Ukraine. Lambrecht was barely audible. She didn't mic herself, and she filmed the address as New Year's Eve revelers in Berlin were setting off fireworks behind her. The video was criticized for being tone deaf. Her own ministry distanced itself from it and calls for her resignation mounted. Lambrecht's resignation comes as Germany is under increasing pressure to send German-made Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine, something Chancellor Olaf Scholz has up to now refused to do. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. There is a certain kind of ape called a gibbon, which can hold down a rhythm as it calls. And now scientists have discovered that when male and female gibbons communicate, their rhythms interact. They can influence each other, sort of like a duet. The findings suggest that apes have at least some of the building blocks for music making. Hear more tomorrow on this program, on your radio, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Two Seattle area school districts are suing the companies that own Snapchat, 
Instagram, and other social media apps. The lawsuit alleges that these companies knowingly harm young people's mental health, and that's costly for the schools that deal with the fallout. Eilish O'Neill from member station KUOW reports. All through high school, Delaney Rustin's daughter Tessa struggled with clinical depression, and being on social media made it worse when she saw photos of her peers outdoing things. She could spiral into a worse mood and feel worse about herself. Rustin is a doctor and the maker of two documentaries about the effect of screens and social media on teens. Her kids went to a public high school in North Seattle. Tessa's struggle with depression was by far the hardest thing that I've gone through in my life. And seeing her pain and knowing that I couldn't protect her from everything that was happening in screens. Rustin says these days, learning how to manage a phone is part of growing up. Now, Seattle Public Schools in a nearby district are suing the companies behind Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. The lawsuit alleges that these companies market to teens and then design algorithms that hold their attention and increase the risk of anxiety, depression, cyberbullying, and eating disorders. They're using our brain science to keep us engaged. Elizabeth Dexter Mazza is a clinical psychologist and the parent of two teens and a preteen. Which keeps us disengaged from things in real life and exacerbates depression and suicide ideation and behaviors in teens. Dexter Mazza says the social isolation of the pandemic, together with social media, have worsened young people's mental health. The general like feature, where somebody posts something and then they're waiting for acknowledgement, really can impact people's self-esteem. The Seattle School District declined to comment for this story. But the Washington State School Superintendent Chris Reichdahl says the effect of social media on young people is a critical issue. No one can continue to tell us that social media has the power of educating, power of advancing knowledge, the ability to inquire, to connect with people. You can't just sell the positives of it without recognizing that some of the darkest things students see are on there. And that too has impact and influence. The lawsuit states that schools have borne the cost. They've had to hire more counselors, train teachers to recognize the mental health needs of their students, and educate students about the dangers of social media. The companies declined to be interviewed for this story, but said in statements that they've taken steps to keep young people safe on their platforms. Meta, for example, says Instagram checks users' ages and allows parental supervision of young people's accounts. Back in North Seattle, Delaney Rustin has a photo of her daughter Tessa in her office. This is her dancing. Rustin says her daughter had loved dancing since she was five, but during her depression, getting to class was a struggle. I just remember many times her crying and saying in some of the depth of her depression, not wanting to go. And yet when she would go eight out of 10 times, she'd say, I'm so glad, mom, you pushed me to get to my class. Getting off of screens, getting exercise and being in person with her friends. That was what she needed. Making sure that we work together to have screen time limits. Having those limits is really love. Rustin says, though she's not sure the current lawsuit is the best way to get there, she really does hope the schools fully fund mental health. For NPR News, I'm Eilish O'Neill in Seattle.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us on WBR tomorrow afternoon when we hear from the Boston doctor who's revolutionized health care for the homeless by fanning out with his staff to tend to people where they live, whether it's on a loading dock or under a bridge. We think of ourselves primarily as like old-time country doctors working in a very urban setting. It's bringing the best in medicine to some of the people who've been left most excluded. Jim O'Connell and author Tracy Kidder, who has just written a book about the good doctor. Our conversation is tomorrow on All Things Considered from 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. It's 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In the forecast, just enough light snow and rain around the area to keep the roads kind of slick and messy. Eventually tonight, some of the clouds break up. Temperatures fall to about 30, and then tomorrow rise to the mid-40s. Sunshine early and clouds moving in later in the day. Should be brighter and milder on Wednesday, all the way up to 50 degrees before it cools off and clouds up again on Thursday. 34 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. If you're ever sitting around on a Monday feeling a little angsty, maybe a little frisky, check out some of the so-called messy Monday stories on Brandon Kyle Goodman's Instagram feed. But just maybe don't have the sound on if you are at work. It's Monday, messy Monday. So tell me something good or tell me something messy. Cool with it like he was into it or like cool with it like happens. When I failed my driver's test, the proctor said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm an actor. She said, oh, well, if I ever seen a movie, I'm going to point and say, he can't drive. Shady. Happy pride? I don't know. This is the game I've ever heard. <laughs> Goodman <laughs> has built up a huge following with these messy Mondays, doling out some truths, some laughs, and most importantly, some love. Goodman is black, queer, non-binary. They grew up in a religious immigrant household, and they know all too well what it's like to hide, to hide the most meaningful parts of yourself. Goodman's book, You Gotta Be You, is an ode to shaking off the expectations of others and tossing out the boxes that society nudges us all into. And above all, it asks every person to consider this question. Who would I be if society never got its hands on me. Brandon Kyle Goodman joins us now. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm so good. And I first just want to say that I happened to pick up your book during a time when I was struggling. And I was very grateful that I had these pages in my hands. Like you helped me think (laughs) about something in my own life a little differently. So thank you for that. Oh my goodness, thank you. That means so much. That means so much. That's my hope. I mean it. 
Well, I'm just going to dive right into the guts of this book because yes. you start from a really upfront place. You share that early on before you felt rejected for your race, before you felt rejected for your sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. You were rejected for your femininity and for not acting like a boy. Yeah. You know, I think that as a kid, when you're like, you know, two, three, and you're just playing, people kind of let you do whatever you want. And then, you know, when you start getting to that preschool, kindergarten age, then there starts to be these rules that I feel like get put on you. And what was really clocked kind of immediately was that I was really effeminate. And I was always kind of being told by, you know, classmates, by teachers, by even at home to like, butch up, to be more of a man, like this perform masculinity, which is very confusing to a five-year-old. But I realized that that was always kind of this thing that I always was trying to go back to was how do I perform masculinity? How do I perform being a man so that I can fit in and also like stay safe? When it came to being both black and gay, there was something that you wrote that really stuck with me. You said with white gay boys, there seemed to be an unspoken expectation that I would need to be a certain kind of gay to fit in. Mm. I would need to perform and be even more femme than I was. Can you talk about that pressure? Yeah. You know, I think the queer community in itself is also still reckoning with the racism and internalized homophobia that happens. So there's this thing, right, where queerness exists in our zeitgeist. People say, yes, queen, or you see our fashion. Now you see guys on the red carpet wearing dresses and wearing halter tops and all this stuff. But the community in which all those things come from, which I would say is black and brown, queer folks aren't protected and aren't valued and aren't validated inside of that. And so the performance of queerness or all those isms really gets credited to white gay people. And so there is a feeling that I felt personally inside of those white queer spaces where there is a performance that you're expected to do. Like, yes, hey, I can't say that on NBR. <laughs> hey, girl. <laughs> uh, you know, you're supposed yeah. to like really uh, yeah. accentuate it because, you know, everyone wants the idea of queerness and wants the performance of it, but not always the people. I mean, because I related to a lot of this sort of racism that you were talking about inside queer spaces because I feel it in straight spaces. Can we just can we just talk about dating white guys for a minute? Like let, yeah. let's both let's get into it. this. <laughs> let's get into it. So you say when you were younger, you never thought you could be as attractive as a white man. And so you dated mm-hmm. white guys in part for the proximity to white privilege. And yes. I gotta say, that is something that resonated with me. I totally related to that. And you said that that dating white guys for proximity to white privilege, it only fed into your self-hatred. Yeah, because it was, you know, I was latching on from a place of lack. So I was latching on to this thing of like, I'm missing something. There's this void that's missing. And my hope is that these white men will fill that void. And then you trick yourself into thinking that they are, but then you always realize that you're not like them. um, And that you're also, if you are approaching it from that angle where you're not whole and you're lacking, then you are, I think, unconsciously or subconsciously excusing bad behavior from those mm-hmm. white men um, mm-hmm. where you you become a racial prop. My husband is white and luckily I've worked through my stuff before. I was going <laughs> to ask you how much have you evolved away? Oh, yes. Being married to Matthew, how much have you evolved away from how you used to think about being with white men? Before we met, I did. You know, before we met, I was really like clear about how much I loved myself and really 
Matthew and I would always joke about people always saying, I, I want my other half. And it's like, no, baby, I'm a whole person. I'm looking mm-hmm. for another whole person, not somebody to complete me, somebody to add to what I'm already doing. Exactly. When Matthew and I met, I was already like fully in my love of Brandon. Mm. And so he was able to be a partner that I think helped me grow, if anything, helped me, you know, expand into who I am as opposed to being somebody who's uh a patch, you know, a patch for the scars. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to end on a pretty basic but important question. Yeah. When in life did you decide that what you wanted to do through your art, through your personality, what you wanted to do was to help people learn to love themselves more? When did that hit you that that's what your purpose is? That's a really beautiful question. Um, Nothing is black and white. There's a lot of gray, and and we get to hold multiple truths. And I think I learned that from my mother. My mother, who has been a source of pain, has also been a source of comfort and inspiration. You know, I think she, when I was very young, really instilled in me, what is your mission statement? As a person going out into the world, like, what do you value and what do you want to stand for? And I think I always wanted to make people like myself feel valuable. And as time went on, I think I, you know, further specified that it's love. You know, I want people to love themselves and see themselves and know that they are three-dimensional, full people. And that they're worthy of love, even with all their flaws, even with all their mistakes. And I don't think we say it enough. I think we... We don't. We hold love a lot. Well, as you say, we are enough exactly as we are. So easy to say, sometimes so impossible to internalize. (laughs) Yes, that's the work. That's the journey. That is the work. Brandon Kyle Goodman's book is called You Gotta Be You, How to Embrace This Messy Life and Step Into Who You Really Are. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us, Brandon. I so enjoyed this. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Still some light snow and rain falling in some parts of the region. That could continue into the evening and then partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be dry, down around 30 degrees. Then tomorrow, maybe sunshine to begin with, although clouds may gather as the day progresses. Warming to the mid-40s. Wednesday is looking pretty nice. Mostly sunny. Could hit 50 degrees. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. 
I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up, Martin Luther King Jr. and segregation. The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation. We look back at King's famous I Have a Dream speech and how nearly six decades later some of that segregation remains. This is All Things Considered. Also ahead, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates over the past year, so why have interest rates for savings accounts stayed so low? And deadly anti-government protests in Peru are making their way to the capital city of Lima. The government has declared a state of emergency. The government has said that it will not allow Lima to be taken over. It is unclear protect Lima in what sense, but that they will protect it. These stories and the latest news headlines coming up. It's 5.01. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Republicans are turning up the heat on President Biden after more classified material was found at his Wilmington, Delaware home. Now the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, is asking the White House to turn over visitor logs for that residence. But as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the White House says it doesn't keep such records for his private home. The request for visitor logs comes after the revelation over the weekend that President Biden's lawyers had found five more pages of classified material in the same spot in his Wilmington home where they had earlier found a single document. Comer wants records of who has come and gone from the House since Biden took office. But White House spokesman Ian Sams tells NPR such visitor logs don't exist. He said that like every president in decades of modern history, Biden's personal residence is personal. Former President Trump never released visitor logs for his private club and home in Florida. He also never allowed the release of White House visitor logs when he was in office, a norm Biden restored. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Emergency crews are still clearing the rubble and searching for bodies in the aftermath of a Russian missile attack on an apartment building in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro. NPR's Alyssa Nadverny reports dozens are still missing. The attack is one of the deadliest strikes on civilians away from the front lines since the war began last February. Rescue workers have been clearing debris all weekend, but now say they are no longer expecting to find any more people alive. Only the dead are left, says Serhii Shova, a squad commander of an emergency crew here. He says the last person he rescued alive was on Sunday, a woman on the fourth floor. He said her young child and her husband did not survive. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Celebrations and remembrances were held around the country today, honoring the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Today is the federal holiday honoring the civil rights leader. President Biden yesterday became the first sitting president to speak at a Sunday church service at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where King was once pastor. Today, Vice President Harris visited a Washington, D.C. university where student volunteers put together academic kits for jumpstart students. Harris, along with Education Secretary Miguel Cardo, 
Sedona praised the students for their commitment to the greater community this holiday. It's extraordinary and it's an extraordinary sign of the strength that we each possess and when we do it as a community, the impact that we can have on our world. King, who would have turned 94 yesterday, was assassinated in 1968 in Memphis. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There have been celebrations across the state today in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. One event took place at Boston University. That's where King received a doctorate in theology in 1955. As part of the event, BU senior Kiara Lamontis read from a 1968 speech King delivered in Atlanta. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. The event included musical performances by students at New England Conservatory, where Coretta Scott King received a music education degree. As the state and nation celebrate Martin Luther King Day, a new poll by UMass Amherst finds the public opinion remains divided on the issue of race. The nationwide survey was conducted earlier this month. Researchers found divergent opinions on issues from anti-Semitism to the need for reparations for the descendants of slaves. The poll did find that a majority of Americans now recognize the existence of white privilege. Unionized teachers in Melrose today ratified a new contract with the city. The three-year deal includes a 10 percent pay raise, and it's retroactive to July 1st of last year. Melrose Mayor Paul Brodeur calls it a good idea that makes significant investments in teacher salaries. The contract still needs to be voted on by the school committee. That's expected to happen on Thursday. Ski and snowboard enthusiasts are celebrating the arrival of some wintry weather this week. Most slopes in Massachusetts were reporting at least a few trails open this holiday weekend. Alan Fletcher is president of the Neshoba Valley Ski Area in Westford, where all lifts and a majority of runs were open today. You know, I was out for a couple hours skiing earlier, and uh, this uh, couple inches of snow we got last night was a real blessing. The uh, conditions are excellent right now. Um, You know, terrain's a little bit limited because we haven't had uh, the super cold weather for snowmaking. The recent rain and warmer weather has made it impossible for resorts to make their own snow. A few inches of snow on the ground for us, depending on where you are. Sleet this afternoon and evening, so be careful out there. Tomorrow may start off with some sunshine, although clouds should move in by the end of the day. Temperatures tomorrow in the mid-40s and then up around 50 degrees on Wednesday with lots of sunshine moving in. 34 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden says he is cooperating fully and completely with an investigation into how classified documents ended up in his personal storage. Former President Trump also remains under federal investigation for the top secret materials found at his Mar-a-Lago home. Now, these cases are different from each other, but both have put new scrutiny on just how the government classifies documents. Ona Hathaway has written about this for Foreign Affairs magazine. She's a professor of law at Yale Law School and former special counsel at the Pentagon. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So you've noted that a lot of government officials whose job it is to keep government secrets secret have admitted to you that the current system leads to mass overclassification. Can you just start by explaining 
why so many documents, and we're talking about tens of millions of documents per year, why so many end up getting classified? That's exactly right. So there's somewhere in the order of over 50 million documents classified every year. We don't know the exact number because even the government can't keep track of it all. (laughs) Uh, So we don't have uh, excellent data. But the last time the government tried to count, it counted about 50 million classified documents. And you know, the reason for all of these documents is mm-hmm. that there's just really no incentive. You know, if you're a person sitting at a desk and you're making a decision about whether to classify something or not, if you classify it, there are generally no ramifications if you've classified something that didn't really need to be classified. But if you make it unclassified and it really should have been classified, you potentially could get in a lot of trouble. And that's part of the reason we end up where we are. In what ways might over-classification of government documents be a problem? Like, why should we as citizens care about too many documents getting the classification designation? There are a lot of reasons we should care. Probably the first one is that when a document is classified, it means that people in government who have access to that information really can't talk about it. And so it makes it very difficult for the American people to know what their government is doing um, when that information is classified. It also creates all kinds of problems for reporters because when reporters get access to that information, it potentially makes them vulnerable to prosecution for a violation of the Espionage Act. So it creates a lot of problems for democracy and for transparency of our government. So to reiterate, the Biden and Trump cases around classified documents are different in scope and in circumstances. But again, both of those cases have raised this new scrutiny about this whole classification system. Is the criticism about over-classification a fair criticism when it comes to either Trump's case or Biden's case? Well, it's hard to know exactly what's happening with the Biden administration because we haven't seen those documents. The fact that they're mixed in with a lot of documents that were not classified is suggestive that they were sort of part of a set of files where classified information kind of got snuck in. But again, we don't have a lot of information. We do have a little bit more information about the materials that um, were retained by President Trump when he left. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a photo of the sort of files on the floor, and you can see if you look at those pictures that um, many of those documents were what's called top secret um, SCI, which is special compartmented information. And I mean, this is the kind of information that is the most likely to do damage to the U.S. government. Again, without seeing the actual documents, hard to say with certainty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but these are the classifications that are reserved for the material that is the most highly protected set of secrets the U.S. government has. So I understand that the current rule is that all classified records can be declassified after 25 years. But I know that you think that time frame should be 10 years with very few exceptions. What else could be done to reform this classification process? We really need to think about how to create incentives for people who are making a decision about whether to classify a document to think maybe I should think twice before ramping this up to the highest level of classification that I can. We have technology now that can help with these decisions, and we could be doing much more when it comes to actually pushing that information back out that no longer needs to be kept classified. Ona Hathaway, former special counsel at the Pentagon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
As Americans observe the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. today, many will pause to remember his most famous speech, I Have a Dream. And Pierre's Alana Wise examines the goals that King set for his country, especially around schools and segregation, and where the nation stands today. It was a speech that gripped the nation, giving many Americans new reason to consider the stark, systemic racism on which the country was built. I have a dream today. In the shadow of Abraham Lincoln's memorial, King called on America to live up to her lofty ideals of freedom and justice for all. He beseeched the nation to end segregation, an issue that still plagues Black, Latino, and poor Americans today. The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Sixty years after his speech, that segregation remains, keeping the nation's poor and racial minorities in a state of economic stagnation. A report last year from the federal government found that about a third of public school students attend a predominantly same-race school, and about 14% of students attend schools with virtually no racial diversity. And last year, the Brookings Institution found that over 80% of Black people live in low-income communities, compared to just under half of poor white people. Segregation is enforced by a system that's so much bigger than just our legal system. That was Tracy Haddon Lowe, a fellow at Brookings who studies segregation in housing. Whether it's banking or whether it's the housing market, whether it's the transportation system or the school system, there are policies and practices that guide all of those systems, whether they are explicitly framed as having malicious racial intent or not, they have the effect of segregating the country both uh, racially and economically. That in turn plays out prominently in American schools. Where you live dictates where you learn. If your neighborhoods are segregated, your public schools probably are too. King saw this segregation as the ultimate failure on America's part. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Experts note that even now, as Jim Crow era segregation is no longer legally enforced, the effects remain. Elijah Anderson is a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Yale. And he's the author of the book, Black and White Space. He says that after physical ghettos were created to contain the Black population, a second ideological ghetto was born, reinforcing the idea of separate, unequal black and white spaces. As a black person uh, enters or navigates uh, the white space, so to speak, he or she is burdened with a negative presumption that must be uh, disproved, uh, neutralized, or overcome. Simply existing in spaces that operate on a system of de facto segregation, Anderson says, creates a dangerous undue burden on black people. It's tiresome. And I think this is, uh, this is one of the biggest issues for Black people today. Despite those issues, Anderson notes that society has evolved in many ways since Dr. King made his plea from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. We've uh, brought about the, the largest Black middle class in American history, and this is very important. We've also elected a Black president, Barack Obama. This is very important. I mean, we've made tremendous progress, but we have so far to go. 
but he warns there are still forces that want to undo Dr. King's legacy. Alana Wise, NPR News. Yukihiro Takahashi, the drummer and lead vocalist of the influential band Yellow Magic Orchestra, died over the weekend. Takahashi first gained attention in Japan and the United Kingdom in the early 1970s for his drumming skills in a band called Sadistic Mika Band. And in 1978, he released a solo album called Sarava, highly influenced by soul and French pop. That same year, Takahashi formed Yellow Magic Orchestra with some bandmates. The group, often referred to as YMO, were trailblazers in the synth-pop genre. Here's their take on the Beatles' hit song, Day Tripper. It was like they created blueprints. You can trace the evolution of several music genres that we have today from the work that YMO did in the late 70s. Everything from video game music to hip hop to electronica, they basically created a new sound. That's Jesse Hawkin, writer and host of the Junk Filter podcast. YMO became a worldwide sensation after their first self-titled album, and they're considered to be one of the most successful Japanese bands of all time, thanks in part to the vision and sounds of Yukihiro Takahashi. It was like um, a supergroup. They were massive in Japan, and the, the, these three massive careers joined forces, almost like a Voltron, and created an even more massive musical footprint that uh, has left its mark. One thing that has to be said about Yukihiro Takahashi is that he was a drip god, as people have pointed out, like completely stylish. I think only George Harrison gets anywhere near him in terms of being effortlessly stylish in every single photograph. Yukihiro Takahashi could often be spotted wearing a fedora and chic eyeglasses. He was 70 years old. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered, why have interest rates on savings accounts stayed low while the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates? Also, when a massive coal mine closed in 2019, thousands of Hopi people lost access to free coal to heat their homes. Grassroots efforts to replace coal with firewood have sprung up and are getting funded. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. The stock market and state and federal offices were closed for the holiday. A reminder, the MBTA trains and buses are running on a Saturday schedule for this holiday. Parking in Boston and other municipalities is free today. The for-profit Bay State College could lose a major accreditation this year amid staff and budget cuts. The New England Commission on Higher Ed decided to withdraw its endorsement of the school this month. The 76-year-old school has been under scrutiny by federal and elected officials after reports of budget shortfalls and dwindling student population. The forecast is coming up. Support for WBUR's Business Report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save. 
energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Few inches of snow on the ground, uh, depending on where you are in the region. This evening could be somewhat tricky driving. Temperatures just about 34 degrees right now. Tomorrow could start up with some sunshine, then turning cloudy by the end of the day, right around the mid 40s. Could have a nice day on Wednesday coming up. The sunniest day of the week and probably the mildest too could hit 50 degrees. 34 degrees now in Boston at 5:20. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. For half a century, France's far-right party, the National Rally, has been led by a Le Pen, first by the father, then by the daughter. But no more. Marine Le Pen's replacement hails from a much younger generation, and party supporters hope he can attract new voters. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley recently met him. Jordan Bardella's desk is immaculate, like his appearance. He sports a navy blazer. His dark hair is trimmed close. Order is an important quality, he tells me. Despite his youth, Bardella's just turned 27, he seems at ease in his new responsibilities. He describes how growing up in the gritty Paris suburbs turned him on to Marine Le Pen at the age of 15. Very young, I was confronted by this phenomenon the French face today, insecurity and violence. Our generation was repeatedly told France is doing badly because of terrorism and unemployment. But I wanted to experience the successful, proud France that my parents and grandparents talked about. Since Jean-Marie Le Pen founded the party in 1972, its central focus has been restricting immigration. Bardella says Marine Le Pen is the only politician with the courage to speak the truth. In November, Le Pen raised Bardella's arm in victory as he was elected president of the party with 84 percent of the vote. Bardella may not have a college degree, but he's a natural orator armed with keen political smarts. And a regular on TV since becoming party spokesman in 2017. It doesn't hurt that he's also in a relationship with Marine Le Pen's niece. Ironically, this son of an Italian immigrant mother feels particularly well-placed to defend his party's anti-immigration platform. My family assimilated. We melted into the national community, worked hard, learned French. I became French completely. But that's not happening today. French far-right specialist at Stanford, Cécile Aldry, says Bardella uses his personal narrative to support his party's ideology. So he can narrate this storyline of, I am myself a son of immigrant, but there are different kinds of immigration. And a Christian one integrates smoothly within a generation, while immigrants from Muslim countries do not. 
Over the last decade, Marine Le Pen has methodically worked to mainstream her party and make it more inclusive. She's broken from her father's extremist positions and embraced an economic platform that helps the working class. She even changed the party's name from the National Front to the National Rally. The strategy has worked. Le Pen has made it twice to the presidential runoff, and in parliamentary elections last June, her party went from 6 to 89 seats, making it the biggest unified opposition to President Emmanuel Macron. I think Marine Le Pen made a very wise move. That's political scientist Jean-Yves Camus. He says Le Pen isn't leaving politics, just the daily grind of running her party, which lets her focus on honing her national image. If you want to become president, you have to stand above the political parties and really be able to be the candidate of people from every walk of life, from the left and the right. Bardella says his main goal is to support Le Pen by building on the party's grassroots strength in future municipal and EU parliament elections where he holds a seat. He says Europe is changing and cites the election of Italy's new far-right prime minister. The Europe of yesterday is not the Europe of today. We have Miss Maloney of Italy, the Polish government, Hungary under Viktor Orban, and Marine Le Pen, who all want to change the EU and give the power back to the people. Analysts say Le Pen, with Bardella at her side, is laser-focused on the presidential election in 2027. But this time, she wouldn't face Macron again. Term limits will prohibit him from running. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates steadily over the past year, but the average national rate for savings accounts has remained stubbornly low. Waylon Wong and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain why. So first, a quick reminder about what banks do, which is move money around. They take in money from depositors, people with, say, savings accounts, and then they take those deposits and lend them out, for instance, in the form of small business loans. For people with savings accounts, banks decide how much interest to pay you, a savings deposit rate. You know, how much they'll reward you for stashing money in the bank's metaphorical vault. Matthew Plosser is a research economist at the New York Fed, and he says it is important to study how the Fed's actions on interest rates affect the way banks behave. We like to understand when we change interest rates, how do these interest rates migrate through the financial system and change the cost of other things? Other things like savings deposit rates. And late last year, Matthew and a fellow researcher at the New York Fed published a blog post looking at these rates over the last 30 years. This period of time covers four cycles of Fed interest rate hikes, including the cycle we're in now. So for a long time, we've known that when the Fed raises interest rates, deposit rates don't go up immediately. That's always been the case. Um, but since the financial crisis, they've responded even more slowly than they had before. In other words, deposit rates have gotten really sluggish, like they barely budge even when the Fed hikes rates and sends interest rates across the country higher. And the way Matthew measures this is using something called, are you ready for this econ vocab? It's called deposit beta. It's a fancy way of just saying how much do deposit rates change when interest rates change. It also sounds like it could be the name of some sort of like... Um, Dubious multivitamin. <laughs> Have you had your deposit beta today? Now, Matthew found that deposit betas hit a high point before the financial crisis in the early 2000s. During this period, a large percentage of a Fed rate hike was passed through to deposit rates. So, so for example, if the Fed raised interest rates, say, 
four percentage points, you would see deposit rates go up more than two percentage points. But that started to change following the financial crisis. Matthew says people started saving more, and as a result, banks were swimming in deposits. They didn't have to offer high interest rates on savings deposit accounts anymore. And by 2019, deposit betas had fallen significantly. So if the Fed raised interest rates four percentage points, deposit rates would go up just over one percentage point. Banks just didn't need those savings to fund their loans and other investments. They have plenty of deposits, and they weren't in a rush to start paying more on these deposits. They didn't even need the deposits they had. And because banks have this excess supply of deposits, they could let those customers go to a competitor. But... That is starting to shift. People are taking their money out of savings to pay for everyday expenses, or they're moving their money to higher-earning investments. Matthew Plosser at the New York Fed says with these changes taking place, deposit rates could start to perk up. At some point, banks will say, we're going to have to be more competitive with our deposit rates. The forces are all moving in the direction of deposit rates eventually going up. It just takes time for that to resolve itself. Adrian Ma. Waylon Wong. NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Join us tomorrow afternoon when we hear from the Boston doctor who has revolutionized health care for the homeless by fanning out with his staff to tend to people where they live, whether that happens to be on a loading dock or under a bridge. We think of ourselves primarily as like old-time country doctors working in a very urban setting. It's bringing the best in medicine to some of the people who've been left most excluded. Jim O'Connell and author Tracy Kidder, who's just written a book about The Good Doctor. Our conversation is tomorrow on All Things Considered from 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Overnight tonight, clouds are breaking up. It should be partly cloudy. Temperatures in the 30 degree range. And then for tomorrow, should rise to the mid-40s. Sunshine early, clouds later in the day. Sunshine's ahead for Wednesday. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden marked today's holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with a speech in Washington. The president addressed the National Action Network, a civil rights organization founded by the Reverend Al Sharpton. The president was in Atlanta yesterday. In Selma, Alabama, a city important to the civil rights movement, people are still recovering from last week's tornado that left widespread damage. Pat Duggins with Alabama Public Radio reports. Volunteers are working to provide food, water, and clothing for tornado victims in Selma. The American Red Cross is coordinating with the local relief group called Love Is What Love Does to support residents hit hard by the storm. 
Homes and businesses were demolished and thousands left without power. These relief efforts are taking place alongside public service projects already planned in honor of the King holiday. Selma played a key role in Dr. King's civil rights legacy. A police posse used clubs and tear gas on voting rights marchers in 1965 on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Selma police are also dealing with possible looting. Officers are patrolling storm-damaged neighborhoods so residents can feel safe leaving their property if they need to go to shelters. For NPR News, I'm Pat Duggins in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Overseas now to Germany, where the country's defense minister has announced that she is stepping down after a series of missteps during her short term in office. Here's NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting from Berlin. Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht is the highest-ranking member of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's government to resign, and her departure is likely to be seen as a blow to his reputation. The Social Democrat politician, who had no military experience, was domestically and internationally recognized as being out of her depth and failing to effectively manage a boost in Germany's military spending announced by Scholz just days after Russia invaded Ukraine. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Activists and elected officials promise to fight for racial equity in education at Boston's annual Martin Luther King Memorial Breakfast today. As WBUR's Walter Worthman reports, the event was held in person at the Boston Convention and Events Center for the first time in two years. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu was moved when she took the podium, abandoning her prepared remarks for a personal speech about the state of American politics. We're battling not just two sides or left or right, but a growing movement of hate, abuse, extremism, and white supremacy. Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley called for more education funding. I don't want to romanticize resilience that our teachers are dipping into their own pockets to resource their classrooms or to feed their students, and then we lift them up and say how extraordinary this is. That is an outrage. Both vowed to fight for Dr. King's legacy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Melrose teachers have ratified a new contract. The tentative deal was approved by 97 percent of Melrose Education Association members who voted today. Teachers reached the pact with the city over the weekend. It includes 10 percent pay raises over the three years of the contract. It also gives teachers more time to prepare lesson plans. The deal averts a strike by unionized teachers that was set to begin tomorrow. It still needs to be approved by the Melrose School Committee. With much of eastern Massachusetts getting several inches of snow, AAA is reminding drivers how to safely navigate snow and ice on the road. AAA's Mary McGuire says give yourself extra time to get where you're going and slow down. Allow greater stopping distance so that you can make sure that if you do have to slow down or apply the brakes, you have greater stopping distance. McGuire also says when you slow down, brake slowly and evenly. Much of Middlesex and Essex counties, as well as Cape Cod and the southern part of the state, remain under a winter weather advisory until 7 o'clock tonight. And the Cape Cod Baseball League turns 100 years old this year, making it one of the oldest baseball leagues in the country. It's where thousands of professional players launch their careers. League spokesperson Michael Lane names a few of them. Some of the Red Sox players that, that have gotten their start on the Cape would include Jason Baratek, Carlton Fisk, Nomar Garcia Parra. And then off the current roster, some of the players would include Matt Barnes, Justin Turner, who they recently signed, Connor Wong, Chris Sale. Cape Cod League's 2023 schedule comes out next Monday. It's 535.
WBUR supporters include Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu slash events. Still have some sloppy driving on side streets, especially where the sleet is continuing now. Partly cloudy overnight tonight should be dry eventually, down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow starting up with some sunshine, although it could turn cloudy by the afternoon, warming to the mid-40s. Wednesday is looking pretty good. Mostly sunny skies could make it all the way to 50 degrees on Wednesday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. More than 40 people have now been killed in protests in Peru, with the death count rising notably in the last week. Protesters demand the resignation of the current president, Dina Boluarte. She has apologized for the violence, but declared that she is not stepping down. These protests started after the previous president, Pedro Castillo, was forced out of office back in December. And in response to the most recent protests, Peru's government has just extended its state of emergency another 30 days, meaning security forces will continue to operate under special authority. Here with us now from Lima is Marcelo Rocha Broom. He's the Peru bureau chief for Bloomberg. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. So where exactly are these latest protests happening right now? So Peru has seen what is basically its, its worst violence in decades. And really the protests have been centered in what is Peru's poorest regions. Uh, it's the rural Andes, particularly in the south. And what we've seen there is in, in multiple cities, just thousands and thousands of people have been taking to the streets. They've been blocking roads. We're talking about a, a hundred highways at this point. And the protests have also taken another trend, which is protesters have been trying to take over the airports in their cities. And that is specifically where we've seen the worst violence. Well, help me understand something, because I know that many of Pedro Castillo, the ousted president, many of his supporters are calling for Boluarte to resign. And Boluarte was the running mate and vice president of Castillo. Why are they calling for her to resign? Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And I don't think anyone has a has a straight answer in that one. But what we know is that the people supporting Boluarte now are the opposite of the people who were supporting Castillo when Castillo was president. Uh, so Castillo won with an overwhelming support from the rural South. And now what we've seen with the latest polls is that Boluarte's biggest support is coming from Lima. And we've seen her making alliances with conservative blocs in Congress that have supported her new cabinet, have supported her call for new elections in April of 2024. So Boluarte is going to step down in just over a year. But protesters are asking for her to step down immediately. Well, if we're seeing that these protests are largely driven by lower income people, especially indigenous people. What do you think that tells us about social class in this country? 
Right, there is a big disconnect between what is happening in the wealthier, wider Lima and what we are seeing in Andean regions. And, and it is exactly the same split that we saw in the election. Uh, the people who were encouraged by Castillo's election and who thought that they were going to gain a voice with Castillo, which doesn't mean that they actually got what they hoped for while Castillo was president, they are once again disillusioned by the state of affairs. Well, if Boluarte, for the moment, uh, is pledging to stay in office and these protesters are still blocking roads all around the country, I mean, is there any resolution in sight in the near future at all? We really do not know what, what is going to happen in the, next, in the next few days or the next few weeks. The, the latest development is that people are coming to Lima to protest. It is unclear exactly how many people are going to come, but the government has said that it will not allow Lima to be taken over. Marcelo Rochabrun, Peru Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, thank you very much for joining us and enlightening us about what's happening right now. No, thank you so much for having me. When a giant coal mine in northern Arizona shut down three years ago, cities that relied on it for electricity pivoted. But it hasn't been easy for residents of the Hopi Nation who burned coal to heat their homes. From member station KNAU, Melissa Sivany reports on people who are stepping up to help. When word came of a firewood giveaway in a nearby city, Matthew Honani woke at 4 a.m. to make the two-hour drive from the Hopi Nation and get in line. He and his wife waited for hours, only to be turned away. On the drive home, being sad and all, she kind of came up with an idea of why can't we help our own people? And when my wife has an idea, I I just got to make it happen for her. That was the birth of Coho for Hopi, a grassroots nonprofit to supply firewood to Hopi people. It's one of 60 organizations in a network called Wood for Life. The collaboration in five western states brings wood from forest thinning projects to communities in need. In Kekatsmovi village, on a treeless landscape rimmed with snow, volunteers with chainsaws cut and stack logs that will be sold at a steep discount or given away. For myself and my wife, it's not really working for that that money. It's more working for the smiles, the thank yous, the asquilis, the kwakwas. Asquili is how women say thank you in Hopi. Kwakwa is for men. Honani says the pine trees being sliced into stove-sized pieces are huge, but the wood won't last long. It's just one of those things where we kind of have to pick and choose who we're going to give it to. It's a hard thing to think about because a lot of the elders are the ones that are really suffering. Elders like Patricia Celestiwa, who lives on Hopi with her 13- and 14-year-old grandsons. Many homes in her village don't have electricity, including her own. Since I can't burn coal, I have to buy wood, but, you know, with limited income. Prices for a cord of wood more than doubled during the pandemic to four or $500. Most homes burn at least five cords a winter. Celestia worries about running out. Especially if we don't have no trucks and no chainsaws or nobody else to, and my grandsons are too, you know, young. I don't think they would be able to, you know, use a chainsaw. There isn't a single organized effort to transition away from coal on the Hopi Nation, which leaves nonprofits to fill in the gaps. 
The wood stove in Celestiwa's home was a gift from Red Feather Development Group, which has swapped out dozens of outdated coal stoves for EPA-certified wood stoves. Alfred Lamaquahu is the program coordinator. One of the major problems on Hopi is the lack of employment. Which has grown worse since the coal mine closed and took with it hundreds of jobs. So a lot of the younger generation are moving off. That leaves a lot of the older generation to try to fend for themselves. Some burn clothes or furniture. There's a heightened risk of toxic indoor air quality and chimney fires. Lamaquahu says it's hard for the tribal government to act on the crisis because it lost 80% of its revenue when the mine shut down. So now you see a lot more um, nonprofits stepping up. Red Feather has hundreds of people on its wait list for a new wood stove or for an electric mini-split heater. Arizona Public Service, the state utility, will cover the cost of installing mini-splits in homes hooked up to the grid as part of a program to assist those hurt by the mine's closure. Laurel Polyestiwa recently got one. I really, really like it. It's just awesome. Polyestiwa says she no longer has to hang plastic sheets and hole up in her bedroom to stay warm. But she still feels a bit hopeless. For a while, you know, everyone's scrambling and it just seems like now it, nobody's thinking about it. And people sure. are still trying to stay warm. She says many have stepped up to help, but there are so few resources and so many people in need. For NPR News, I'm Melissa Sivany. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been nearly six months since the launch of 988. That's the newest number to reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The number is easy to remember, and that's important for someone who is in an emotional crisis. In a short time, the support line has expanded its reach. There are call centers all across the country. But how effective is the new shorter number? NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has an update. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline received over 1.7 million calls, texts and chats in its first five months. That's nearly half a million more than made with the old 10-digit Suicide Prevention Lifeline during the same period the year before. We see the uptick in volume as an indicator that more people are aware of the service and are able to access it. Kimberly Williams is the president and CEO of Vibrant Emotional Health, the nonprofit that oversees the National 988 network. She says not only did more people reach out, more people were connected to help. Significant investments in capacity at uh, the federal, state and local levels really helped to ensure that the lifeline was able to respond to many more people in crisis. For one, there were fewer abandoned calls compared to 2021. And average wait times to speak to a counsellor fell from close to three minutes in November 2021 to just 36 seconds last November. Dr. John Palmieri is overseeing the 988 launch for the federal government. So more people are being connected to those trained counsellors and they're being connected more quickly to the life-saving services that are available. He says there's been a huge rise in people connecting with 988 through texts and chats, a preferred mode of contact by younger people. Those younger people in crisis tend to be in more acute stages of distress, and so making sure that they're connected to the lifeline more quickly is critically important as well. Community Crisis Services in Heightsville, Maryland, is one of the 200 or so centers that make up the national 988 network. Tim Jansen heads the organization. 
He says the recent federal investments have helped him beef up capacity. We probably had roughly 75 or 80 folks that work the phones and chat. And so now we're up to pushing 300. But he adds other crisis centers across the country are still struggling to hire. You know, it doesn't pay a million dollars. Um, the work can be hard. There's secondary and tertiary trauma related to listening to calls, you know, or even doing chats. And data shows that some states are doing a lot better than others. In Maryland, where Jansen works, the 988 response rate in November was 89 percent. In Texas, it was 63 percent. Jansen adds that connecting people to continuing mental health care in their community remains a big challenge across the country. There's a significant shortage of social workers and mental health professionals that people can see. People wind up at places that have long waiting lists. And until there are more providers in communities, he says, 988 can only do so much to address someone's ongoing mental health needs. Read the Chatterjee, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Nice to have you with us on this holiday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a children's book from Grammy Award-winning singer Roberta Flack. In the forecast, some snow showers may stick around until about 9 tonight. Then skies turn partly cloudy, lows about 30. Tomorrow we could wake up to sunshine, but then clouding over by the afternoon. Temperatures start to climb, reaching the mid-40s tomorrow, climbing even more for Wednesday. Highs around 50 with plenty of sunshine. The snowfall from yesterday and today has made things messy, but it has not left too much in the way of accumulation. The highest amounts were in East Falmouth on the Cape, about three and a half inches, about the same in Kingston and in North Andover. Check back on the news with WBR again tomorrow morning. Tap to listen on the WBR mobile app while you're running errands or heading out to work. This is 90.9 WBUR. 33 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. A popular video game about surviving an apocalypse has been adapted into HBO's newest adventure series, The Last of Us. It premiered last night, and NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says the show finds a way to take a familiar story to exciting new places. It is tempting to dismiss HBO's The Last of Us as yet another in a long line of post-apocalyptic zombie adventure stories, like a mashup of The Walking Dead and The Road. Especially when you hear the central premise. Pedro Pascal plays Joel, a construction contractor turned hardened survivor when a zombie apocalypse shatters the world. 
he winds up escorting Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, across the country in an effort to help find a cure. Their early interactions are a little frosty as the rebellious teen Ellie is forced to work with world-weary Joel. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? You haven't seen the world, so you don't know. You keep going for family. I'm not family. No. Your cargo. Now, anyone who's seen any zombie movies knows Joel's attitude about Ellie is bound to change before long. But even though this setting and situation feels familiar, the show's producers, including Craig Mazin, creator of HBO's hit miniseries Chernobyl, find fresh material. The zombies aren't created by a virus or a pathogen, but by a fungus. A doctor on a talk show explains how it might work. There's a fungus that infects insects, gets inside an ant, for example, travels through its circulatory system to the ant's brain and then floods it with hallucinogens, thus bending the ant's mind to its will. The fungus starts to direct the ant's behavior, telling it where to go, what to do, like a puppeteer with a marionette. And it gets worse. The fungus needs food to live, so it begins to devour its host from within. Yeah, kind of icky. Normally, we learn, such fungi cannot survive in a human because our bodies are too hot. But if global warming prompts an evolution, suddenly you have people animated by plants seeking to turn the world into a giant fungus colony. But the real secret sauce of The Last of Us is its storytelling style. We meet characters and situations who seem unconnected, only to find the evolving story turns to bring them into Joel and Ellie's journey. In particular, the White Lotus alum Murray Bartlett and Parks and Rec star Nick Offerman have a delicate story that emerges in the midst of the apocalypse. It's touching, heartwarming, and super sad all at once. It's the best adaptation of a video game I have seen yet. Part of the reason is 19-year-old English actress Bella Ramsey, best known as Lady Mormon on Game of Thrones, who gives a star-making performance as Ellie. When she hits a particular rough patch with Joel that brings tragedy, Ellie reminds him that he chose to go on this journey. Look, I've been thinking about... I don't want your sorry. I wasn't going to say I'm sorry. I was going to say that I've been thinking about what happened. Nobody made you or test take me. Nobody made you go along with this plan. You needed a truck battery or whatever, and you made a choice. So don't blame me for something that isn't my fault. I can't say much more without dropping serious spoilers, but I can say The Last of Us excels by focusing on the human connections between its characters and the terrible choices they're forced to make as they fight for humanity at the end of the world. I'm Eric Deggins. Roberta Flack's voice has mesmerized audiences around the world for decades. Strumming my bed with his fingers, singing my life with his words, killing me softly with his song. In November, the five-time Grammy winner announced she has ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And though she can no longer sing and talking is difficult, she has just published the story of her childhood. And Pierre's Elizabeth Blair reports on Flack's new picture book, The Green Piano, How Little Me Found Music. Yes, Roberta Flack's first piano was green, but nine-year-old Roberta didn't care. She'd been dreaming of having her very own piano since she was four. Dreamed of that piano when I tap, tap, tapped out tunes on tabletops. 
windowsills. Those tabletops and windowsills were in Flack's childhood home in Asheville, North Carolina. Her dad played piano and harmonica. Her mom played organ in church. They could see that little Roberta had promise as a musician. At age three, maybe four, there was me at the keys of that church piano, picking out hymns we sang like, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. Later, the family moved to Arlington, Virginia. One day, when Roberta's dad was walking home from work, he spotted an old, upright piano in a junkyard. Old, ratty, beat-up, weather-worn, faded thing. Its ivories terribly stained, and it stank. But Daddy, he saw treasure. And he asked the junkyard owner, can I have it? And the man let him have it. Tanya Bolden co-wrote The Green Piano with Roberta Flack. He got it home, and then he and his wife cleaned it, and he tuned it, and painted it a beautiful grassy green. This is Roberta Flack from an album she recorded in 1972. Because of her ALS, she was unable to be interviewed. Bolden says it was important to the singer that the green piano give credit to the people who helped her along the way, starting with her parents. They were extraordinary, ordinary people. You know, at one point, her father was a cook, another time a waiter. One time the mother was a, a maid and later a baker. And at one point later, her father became a builder. But they were people of humble means but they were people of music. In the story, we learn that classical was Flack's first love, as she told NPR in 2012. My real ambition was to be a concert pianist and to play Schumann and Bach and, you know, Chopin, the romantics, those were my guys. At age 15, Flack received a full music scholarship to Howard University. 15. In the early 1960s, she was teaching in public schools by day and moonlighting as a singer and pianist by night. But by the end of the decade, she had quit the classroom. Her soulful, intimate recordings were selling millions of albums around the world. The first time ever I saw Roberta Flack has inspired generations of musicians, Lauren Hill, India Ari, Alicia Keys. Long after her days as a school teacher, she continued teaching and mentoring young musicians. She always wanted to help kids the way that she was helped herself. Suzanne Koga has been Roberta Flack's manager for more than 30 years. Part of that was to write a book and uh, share with them her experience of, you know, who would ever think that a person like Roberta Flack would have found her voice in a junkyard piano that her father painted green. In the author's note at the end of her new children's book, Roberta Flack tells young readers to, quote, find your own green piano and a way to put that beautiful music into the world. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Children both rich and poor, they're searching for the truth. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org.
and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. This is 90.9 WBUR in sports. It was a win-win day for the Celtics and Bruins today. Celtics beat the Charlotte Hornets on Charlotte's home court, 130-118. to The Bruins demolished the Philadelphia Flyers at the Garden, 6 to nothing. Veteran center David Krejci notched his 1,000th game for the Bruins today. Only two other players have hit that number while playing only for the Bruins, Patrice Bergeron and Wayne Cashman. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees now at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Storm-battered California may have to withstand one more round of torrential rains and winds before the storms finally relent. About 8 million people are under flood watch until tonight. Coming up before the flooding, there was drought, so we'll hear what California needs to do to end drought conditions. It's Monday, January 16th, and this is All Things Considered. Also ahead, when the January 6th committee's final report dropped, publishers rushed to create their own versions in hopes of landing a bestseller. This is a document that generations of Americans are going to go to and back to and consume and study. So, how to do coming up. And tonight on Marketplace, union membership has declined in the decades since Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, but strike activity was up 50% last year. A look at what's motivating workers coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The daughter of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is calling on politicians to stop just quoting her father and take action on what she calls a broken system. For member station WABE, Alex Helmick has more. Speaking at the annual ceremony in Atlanta honoring her father, Reverend Bernice King said she's disappointed that so little progress has been made on ending poverty, racism, and militarism. And she told the crowd at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where her father once was pastor, leaders need to move beyond platitudes. We must move beyond the quotable king to the livable king because our world is in moral distress. President Joe Biden spoke on Sunday at the church where Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is currently senior pastor. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmick in Atlanta. The last in a series of major damaging winter storms is making its way across California. NPR's Nathan Rott reports levees have been breached, thousands of trees toppled, and a major cleanup effort awaits. For the last couple of weeks, California has been getting pummeled by drenching storms, sending rivers surging, causing landslides, and killing at least 19 people. The National Weather Service says the last of these major storms should be finished Monday, with another smaller storm possible midweek. A drier period is forecast from there, which should help rivers normalize and allow cleanup crews to start fixing damaged roadways and infrastructure. President Biden declared a major disaster declaration for the state, freeing up federal dollars to help with the effort over the weekend. 
Nathan Rott, NPR News, Ventura, California. And the National Weather Service says the storm system will move into the southwest tomorrow before becoming a multi-hazard winter storm midweek in the Midwest. Opponents of Peru's current president say they will continue protesting despite the extension of a state of emergency in the capital and two other regions. NPR's Kerry Khan reports protesters from the country's poor southern regions are expected in Lima this week. President Dina Bolarte extended the state of emergency another 30 days as Peru reels from some of the worst violence in decades. More than 40 people have died, most in confrontations with security forces since December. That's when then-ex-president Pedro Castillo attempted to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. He was removed from office and arrested. He remains in custody. Bolarte, his vice president, was quickly sworn into office. Supporters of the former president are calling on Bolarte to resign. She has refused, although she did apologize for the high death toll in the protests. A new poll shows that her popularity is plunging. Nearly three-quarters of Peruvians disapprove of her government, even more disapprove of the current Congress. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Lima, Peru. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Teachers Union in Melrose has approved a new contract with the city. Members of the Melrose Education Association approved the deal today after they reached a tentative agreement with the city over the weekend. WBUR's Josie Guarino has more. 97% of Melrose teachers voted in favor of the new deal. It includes 10% pay raises over the three-year contract, retroactive to last July. The deal also gives teachers more time to lesson plan. President of the Melrose Education Association, Lisa Donovan, says they were ready to strike tomorrow if a deal wasn't reached. We are thrilled that we do not have to do that. Um, We are thrilled that we can now, for the first time in almost a year, fully focus on the students in front of us in our classroom. Melrose Mayor Paul Brodeur calls the agreement a good deal that makes significant investments in teacher salaries. The Melrose School Committee still needs to approve the contract. That vote is expected later in the week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Boston's annual Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast was held in person today for the first time in two years. Politicians, activists, and clergy gathered at the Boston Convention and Events Center to honor Dr. King's legacy. Governor Maura Healey said she often turns to the civil rights leader's words for guidance and inspiration. In his name, we will stand up for racial justice, for equality. We will root our actions in love. We will listen, respect, and embrace every person in this state. The celebration is the longest-running event of its kind in the country. Members of the state's congressional delegation also took time to honor Martin Luther King Jr. today. Representative Jake Auchincloss and his family paid a visit to the new sculpture, The Embrace, on the Boston Common. It celebrates the legacy of Dr. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King. Representative Richard Neal and Senator Elizabeth Warren shared messages celebrating King's legacy. And a small town in Maine known for its woods and introverts is making international news after winning one, a winning $1.35 billion Mega Millions ticket was sold there. The lucky player has not been identified, but the country store where the ticket was sold has been named. It is hometown gas and grill in Lebanon, Maine. Store owner Fred Coutreau says his cut for selling the winning ticket is $50,000. We're pretty happy. I'm going to give half of that back to the staff. We're going to disperse that. Maybe we'll get something nice for the town. And um, it's all good. It's just very exciting all around. A longtime lottery player himself, Coutreau, says he hopes the winner is somebody local. 
In the forecast, just enough light snow and rain around the area to keep some of the roads slick. Eventually tonight, some of the clouds break up. Temperatures fall to about 30, and then tomorrow should rise to the mid-40s. Sunshine early, clouds moving in later in the day. 34 degrees still in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. Here in Los Angeles, the rain has felt relentless. It's basically all anyone can talk about right now, which is so strange in a place that's usually obsessed with drought. What's been confusing the last couple weeks is we're a state that has been struggling with flood emergencies during a drought emergency. And while we're hearing a lot of talk about how these historic rainstorms have made a noticeable dent in the drought conditions around here, one question now is, well, how much further do we actually have to go to end the drought that has gripped parts of California and the West for years? We're going to get a reality check on that now with Sarah Porter, who directs the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Welcome. Good to be here with you. Good to have you. Okay, so can you just start us off as concretely as possible? Is a drought defined by how much rain is falling, how much water is available to people in reservoirs, something else? What is the definition of a drought? Well, a drought really means below average precipitation over some period of time. Okay, so then what is the working definition of when a drought is over? Is it mostly about how much water is in the reservoirs? Yeah, as far as our Western water challenges go, it's not how much rain fell on the ground outside your door in Los Angeles or outside my door in Phoenix. It's how much snowpack has built up that supplies the big reservoirs. Something like two-thirds of Californians rely in part on snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas. In the larger Colorado River watershed, which includes seven states and Mexico, a vast region, most of the water that flows in the Colorado into the reservoirs that people rely on comes from snowpack in the upper Rockies. So we look at snowpack in those places to think about how is precipitation impacting the water supply. And I would say we're in a good place in both the upper Rockies and in the Sierra Nevadas right now today, but we need that above average snow to continue through the winter. Well, if we are talking about the Western region of the US, the areas that have seen ongoing drought conditions for like more than 20 years, how far away are we from this goalpost that you have laid out that is full of reservoirs? Can you just give us a real world picture? First of all, there's so many variables. It's very hard to say generally, but let's just say generally we're a few years away, especially to restore the Colorado River, which is such a critical water supply for Southern California and other big cities in the Southwest. We would need multiple years of well above average snowpack in the upper Rockies. The California Water Project that relies on water from the Sierra Nevada doesn't have as long a timeline to recover, but it's we would still need a couple really good winters for those reservoirs to start to recover. I guess I'm sort of listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, well, no, duh, a ton of rain and a ton of snow would be great for drought conditions, but meteorologically speaking, how realistic is it that we will actually see consistently this kind of historic level of rainfall and snowfall in the next several years consecutively? Not likely. The West is used to great variability. So we typically have a really wet year and then a string of dry years. 
with climate change, we don't know. And one other really important point, and that is that the hotter temperatures during the year mean that less of that snowpack turns into water that eventually makes its way into a river. The ground is hot and dry, so the ground holds more snow melt and more snow evaporates into the air than before. Mm -hmm. So the efficiency of turning snow into water that becomes the water supply in our reservoirs is really changing. And it's very difficult to predict what the trends will be in the coming years. Sarah Porter is director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. When the January 6th committee report dropped, a number of publishers were vying to be the first to release it as a book. You can now buy versions of this otherwise free government document from Penguin Random House, Macmillan, Skyhorse, and other publishers. And, you know, some government reports do have a track record of becoming splashy bestsellers. Think the 9-11 Commission Report or the Mueller Report from 2019. So... How is this one faring? Well, Andrew Limbong, host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast, has more. You, me, and the various publishers waiting with bated breath got the 845-page report all at the same time. It was 9.45 p.m. on the 22nd of December. That's Guy Oldfield, the senior director of production for Macmillan Audio. He was in charge of getting the audiobook version together as soon as possible. The planning for this project started much, much earlier in the year. He'd already lined up nine of his experienced, most efficient narrators and paired them up with nine of his sharpest audio editors. And they got to work reading and recording the mammoth report. Chapter 1. The Big Lie. Read for you by Lisa Flanagan. Late on election night 2020, President Donald J. Trump addressed the nation. It really was just a kind of a maths puzzle, and we figured it out. They figured it out fast, too. Oldfield and his team got the nearly 24-hour audiobook mixed and mastered by Christmas Eve morning. So, with that sprint of effort behind him, was it all worth it? We didn't set ourselves any particular expectations. We really weren't certain. But having seen the sales numbers, it was well worth the effort. It really, really was. To be out there and to be out there first, definitely worthwhile. It's still pretty early, but as of this recording, the audiobook is 94th on Audible's top downloaded 100 audiobooks. On the print side of things, well, here's Kristen McLean, the primary industry analyst for NPD Books Group, which tracks books sales. She compared the first week sales figures from the January 6th report to both the 9-11 Commission report and the Mueller report. First week sales for the January 6th committee are definitely weaker than what we saw for the first week of either the Mueller report or the 9-11 report. Less than half of the sales volume for this report compared to, say, the Mueller report. McLean says these first few weeks are big indicators. Typically, these types of reports have strong first weeks, and then they taper off within three weeks of the launch date in terms of the the total volume sold. McLean says this big drop-off between the January 6th report and the 9-11 Commission report is that it's just entering a different America. Our politics are more polarized. Our media landscape is much more diffuse. But for Guy Oldfield, the director of production for Macmillan Audio, the chance to make the January 6th report into an audiobook was a chance to be a part of history. I'm a student of political science, and... I could tell that this is a document that generations of Americans are going to go to and back to and consume and study for years to come. And it is, I don't want to sound like cliche, but it really is living history. And I think an audio version 
just makes it all the more real. And just because the January 6th report isn't dominating the sales charts like the 9-11 report did, there's still incentive for publishers to put out free government documents. They're not paying an advance to an author for this information, right? They may be paying an advance to someone to write a foreword. But beyond that, every unit that goes out the door has a profit margin attached for that publisher. For instance, according to McLean, one document that's consistently on the bestsellers list for political science is the United States Constitution. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And in 1985, Vanessa Foster and her then-husband left their lives in Texas behind and traveled to Alaska. Upon arriving, they bought an old Jeep with the last of their money and started driving across the state. They were broke and unemployed. I had nothing left in the world. Nothing because we had left Texas and walked away from everything. Anyway, somewhere along the way, my husband decided it would be a great idea to pick up a hitchhiker. So he pulled over and picked up this guy. I didn't like him from the beginning, but um, after a few hours in the car together, we all needed to stop at a rest stop and we finally found one. I hopped out, rushed over to the ladies' room. And when I came out a few minutes later, my husband was exiting the men's room and we locked eyes and we looked over at the parking lot And the hitchhiker and our truck were gone. He left us stranded on the side of the road with nothing but the clothes we were wearing. And I think we had like $1.27 between us. So we became the hitchhikers. So we're, we're walking down the road, the highway outside Fairbanks, Alaska. Every car that did come by just kind of zoomed on past. But after a little while, an El Camino came up and pulled over, and um, the nice gentleman driving, he looked to be about middle-aged, kind of bright blue eyes, and he told us just to hop in the back. I'll never forget glancing over at him while we were driving down the road and seeing that he held the steering wheel the same way my father did. And when I saw that, the way his hands were positioned on the steering wheel, I took it as a sign that I could trust this man. And I started to believe that, okay, maybe, maybe everything's going to be all right. Him picking us up, it was like the flip side of the coin, and it restored my faith in humanity. One person could be so cruel as to leave us there, but another, another man could, you know, had the kindness in his heart to stop for these strangers, you know, walking down the road. So if he walked in right now, I would really like to just give him a hug and just let him know how much I appreciate his kindness toward a couple of strangers on that Alaskan highway. After picking them up, Foster's unsung hero gave them a free place to stay and jobs at his ranch in Homer, Alaska. After her time there, Foster ended her marriage and started a new life. Today, she is a writer, a financial planner, and a grandmother. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. 
This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR Music, the links to ancient cultures. And this evening on Marketplace, if you're ever shopping online and a dramatic countdown clock on a big sale convinces you to make a purchase, you're not alone. These tactics kind of play into our own fears and the ways that we think. Um, When we feel like something is scarce, when we feel like something is going to run out, when we feel like something is urgent. A look at how web design can convince us to buy coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The stock market and state and federal offices were closed for the holiday today. And a reminder, the MBTA trains and buses are on a Saturday schedule. On this holiday, parking in Boston and other municipalities is free today. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. And Worcester Cultural Coalition. Technicopia is a makerspace in which creatives of many disciplines can share ideas, equipment, and knowledge. Worcesterculture.org. Some snow showers may stick around until 9 o'clock tonight. Skies turn partly cloudy, lows about 30 degrees. Could wake up to sunshine tomorrow, but then clouding over in the afternoon. Temperatures reach the mid-40s, could reach 50 degrees on Wednesday. This is WBUR. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. This is a 500-year-old song that carries both Turkish and Arabic elements. It's being taught in southern Turkey by Syrian classical musicians, refugees from Aleppo. The two cultures, Syrian and Turkish, have shared music and art for centuries. And as NPR's Fatma Tanis reports, a music institute hopes to revive that cultural connection and inspire integration through music. On a weekday evening in Gaziantep, a city in southern Turkey, students pile into a classroom. Most of them are Syrian men and women, ages ranging between 18 and 50 years old. Several musical instruments are set up at the front. The teacher, Syrian Ibrahim Muslimani, welcomes the class in Arabic and Turkish. He notes that there's a newcomer, a Turkish woman in her 20s who heard about the class from her Syrian friend and wants to learn more about their shared music and culture. Muslimani hands out the sheet music for the song they're learning today, which some of the students will play on their instruments, and they will all sing along. One, two, three, four. This selection dates back five centuries and was played at Ottoman royal courts in Istanbul. The lyrics are about music itself and how varied it is, like the stars and planets in the sky. 
This rhythm is very common in Turkish music and in the Syrian city of Aleppo, known for its rich culture, now devastated by the civil war. The students go from singing the Ottoman song to this classic from Aleppo. For one of the students, Syrian Rafif Oflazolu, what she's learned here helped her adjust to her new adopted country after fleeing the dangers back home. It makes me feel that it's closer to me. Instead of thinking like you are a foreigner, when you see something you know in common between you and this culture, you feel that you are closer to this. You feel that it's two cultures, but you feel that music is unifying it. The school is run by the organization Muslimani founded, called Nefes. First, there were two teachers. Now, they have 14, Syrian and Turkish, all volunteers. Along with musical and cultural appreciation, they teach how to play instruments, like the oud, an ancient pear-shaped string instrument and ancestor to the guitar. The kanun, a plucked zither. And the darbuka drum. along with piano and violin. Musulmani says they have students ranging from six years old to older adults, and many of them fled the war next door. In every class, we speak both Turkish and Arabic. It's important because some of the young Syrian kids have spent most of their lives here in Turkey and are more fluent in Turkish. We're trying to preserve our Syrian cultural identity, but also getting to know the Turkish identity through art. Last year, an orchestra of 100 students, Syrian and Turkish, held a concert. It was attended by nearly 2,000 people, an emblem of the integration that this institute is trying to foster. Turkey once had an open-door policy for Syrians, hosting millions of them. But the attitude has changed as Turkey's economy struggles and politicians scapegoat refugees. Racism has now unfortunately become part of regular life for us. But we believe that the activities we're doing here will lower the social tensions and highlight the richness of our presence together as Turks and Syrians. But what's going on here isn't just a superficial let's get together and sing kind of thing. It's a serious study of the music where the two cultures meet, starting with the tones themselves. Arabic music are similar. To the uninitiated, they might even sound the same. They both use the same melodic system with microtones. Those are flourishes in between musical notes, and that's what differentiates it from what you'd hear on, say, a piano or a guitar. The microtones add many more layers of emotions and sounds to the music. But there 
are differences. Turkish and Arab musicians will tune their instruments and even play the same compositions differently. Some Turkish compositions that can sound playful with rapid plucked notes become heavier when played in the Arabic style with the notes drawn out. So this song played in the Turkish style at the school. like this in an Arabic-style recording. Students are transfixed by these details. I was shocked, like, there is a lot, you know, tens of the same songs that is was sing, you know, in, in Arabic and in Turkish. That's Rafif Oflazolo again. She fled Aleppo in 2013 and is now a Turkish citizen. She finds the connect the dots approach with music and culture at the school delightful. Also, I mean, the difference between, for example, the kanun, the Arabic one, and the Turkish one, and you know the tone and you have half tone, third tone. I mean, there is something very unique about the Turkish music. She's 41 years old and comes from a family passionate about classical Arabic music. Back in Aleppo, she studied the oud for most of her life. Now in Turkey, she has an office job and cherishes the chance to keep exploring her love of music. I'm calling it, it's my therapy. <laughs> I keep saying this because, you know, we work for long hours. It's not easy. It's my third language. I mean, in this country, you know, we are not that much stable with a lot of, you know, challenges in life. But I think this is like my, my zone, my comfort, you know, place. This song is one of her favorites, about someone searching for their missing lover. The class sings along, first in Turkish, then Arabic. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Gaziantep, Southern Turkey. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins won another game at home, this time with a resounding pounding of the Philadelphia Flyers 6-0. Celtics on the road down the Charlotte Hornets 130-118. The holiday ends with a few inches of snow on the ground, depending on where you are. Sleet right now making for tricky driving. Tomorrow may start off with some sunshine, although it should turn gray by the end of the day tomorrow, right around the mid-40s. Could have a beautiful day on Wednesday, sunny and mild, maybe hitting 50 degrees. The snowfall from yesterday and today has made things messy, but has not left too much in the way of accumulation. The highest amounts were in East Falmouth on the Cape, about three and a half inches, about the same in Kingston and in North Andover. It's 630. WBUR supporters include Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu events.